So as we have done, shall we do again? I'm going to read the question, and we all read the answer together. Okay. So question 20 of the New City Catechism. Who is the Redeemer? Answer. The only Redeemer is the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, in whom he became man and bore the penalty of sin himself. Okay. Bow with me in prayer. Father, you are good and kind. Lord, as we have read in this question, Lord, there is a Redeemer. And the fact that there is a Redeemer means that there is a need for redemption. Lord, help us to be a people who always sees the need for redemption. Lord, help us to not be overinflated with ideas of self-righteousness or of our own worth lord we are worthy in your eyes in your via your sacrifice lord but of ourselves father we are undone lord we are not innocent people as newton says lord we are not a people who fell into sin through no fault of their own lord for no defect of their own lord we are not a people unfortunate lord we are a people ungodly and yet you came to save us anyway. Lord, we thank you so much, Father, for sending Christ. Christ, we thank you for coming. Spirit, we thank you for opening our eyes to Christ. We thank you, God, holistically, triune in nature. We thank you so much for just loving us and for helping us to know you, for allowing us to know you, Lord, that we may know you as Redeemer as opposed to knowing you as Judge. Father, we know that there are those who will know you as judge, and we weep for that. We pray for a revival in this nation, Lord. We, we are but a small spark, Lord. We are least among the peoples in the earth, Lord, and we thank you that you have chosen us to know you. We pray, Father, that you would be with us as we go about your, your word today. Be with Kevin as he comes. Uh, we thank you so much for just the love that you've given us. We pray that you be with um, the Hardens and the Chambers and the college students who have come and will leave again. And we thank you so much, Father, for your love and your graciousness, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our scripture reading today is from Mark chapter 12. Mark 12, verse 13 through 17. This is the word of God. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him and talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever.
All right. Thank you, Nathan and Michael. Uh, imagine with me uh, that uh, you're going on an appointment. Let's say I have an appointment tomorrow, uh, and you're going to come with me. And I tell you, I'm not really sure. I just kind of got a call. I don't know this person. But I'm going to a meeting, and you're just joining kind of like a ride-along, right? So we show up, and it's not one person. It ends up being there's two people that are there at this meeting for us to meet with. One of them has a Make America Great Again hat on. The other has a Black Lives Matters t-shirt on. You think, this is a trap, right? What's about to happen here? These are two people who usually are not wanting to have a joint meeting with the pastor, right? And so what's about to happen here? Is this about to be one of those, whose side are you on? Are you with us or are you with them? Either way, it would be an, an odd pairing, right? Usually. Now, this is similar to what's going on with Jesus in his meeting today. So, so what's happening is, is he's meeting with the Pharisees, and the, and the Herodians. And you should know a lot of times when the, when the, the, the text is about, uh, or when Jesus is telling a story, what's going on, the audience matters. Like, for example, in Luke 15, where we have the story of the prodigal son, it's important that Jesus was talking to the prostitutes and uh, the, or the, the Pharisees and the, and the prostitutes, the older and younger type brother in the story. And so the, the Pharisees and the Herodians are important to note here. And, and it's uh, and it's interesting that they come to Jesus together, unified with a question, because these two people are usually uh, 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 against each other. The, the Pharisees are, as you might know, very loyal to God and very strict in, in how they obey God and see themselves as different from the world. Uh, and the Herodians were, were the Jewish people who were um, uh, r- really loyal to, to Herod, to Caesar, to Rome. And so these people were, were on the opposite sides of the, of the current debate of this, of this age, right? So, so these are two people who usually don't get along, who are usually saying the problems with these guys over here. And here they are addressing Jesus. And we see in verse 13 that it is a trap. So this question is not being asked in good faith. And before they ask the question, they flatter Jesus with a true statement about him. One that any teacher would love to have describe them. They say, teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. So they get that right. That's Jesus for us, right? Then comes the trap. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Yes or no? Should we pay them or should we not? Yes or no? I want to know whose team are you on here? And if Jesus says they should pay taxes, then he's in trouble with the Pharisees because he's selling out to the government. He's validating the evil Roman government by paying taxes, and the money will ultimately be used to further carry out the oppression of Israel. If you pay taxes, you are literally funding the oppression of God's people. But if he says they should not pay taxes, then he's still in trouble. And and here's some some history to why he'll be in trouble. About 30 years before this moment, there was a man called Judas the Galilean. And Judas the Galilean led a Jewish revolt against the government. And he famously did two things prior to the revolt. One, he cleansed the temple. Remember what Jesus did last week? He cleansed the temple. And then two, 
He refused to pay taxes. And so with Jesus already having cleansed the temple, man, if we can get him to do step two, then we can say this guy's going to lead a revolt. If Jesus says that they should not pay taxes, then they can turn them over to the authorities and he'll be jailed or executed. So Jesus is truly in a no-win situation here. But we get his response in verse 15. It says this, Knowing their hypocrisy, knowing they weren't there in good faith, he said to them, Why do you put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the thing that are, things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. So give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God. Give Caesar his due and give God his due. It's simple and it's profound. And I want to spend some time considering these two things, giving Caesar his due and giving God his due. And then after that, I want to spend some time considering how we might mix these up and we might treat Caesar like God or treat God like Caesar. So first, let's talk a little bit about giving to Caesar. The, the idea of paying taxes isn't super controversial for us. I believe tomorrow's tax day. I didn't plan this out. But, um, but anyway, uh, it's not really controversial for us. I, I haven't had uh, anybody that seriously talked about maybe how we shouldn't pay taxes. A lot of us complain about taxes. But no one said, like, I think it's wrong to pay taxes. And so for, for these folks, it was, it was more of an issue. And if you think about the people of Israel, they are on land that was given them by God. And it's been, been in there when the, the, the Israelites have lived there. Their forefathers have been there. Land God had given them. And now outsiders had come in and they are oppressing them and they are ruling over them. And on top of that, they want taxes. They want them to pay a fee. Their oppressors want them to pay a fee for coming in and taking over their land. And look, nobody likes paying taxes, but they especially hated paying taxes. It'd be like this. I love this analogy. It'd be like if Ole Miss came over and took over Starkville and instituted a land shark tax. And that tax went to funding Ole Miss recruiting. Should we pay this? Yes. No, but, but that's how it stings, you know. It's like we hate these people, and on top of them ruling over us, they want a fee for ruling over us. So it stung them. As much as it might sting us now, it really stung them. They're flinching over this. And just like in our day, two different camps emerge. One side says, you should definitely pay taxes. Be a good citizen. Seek the welfare of the city. Jeremiah 29, don't you remember the exile, how we're supposed to live? And then the other side says, you've got to be kidding me. You're going to give money to fund the oppression of God's people? Have you seen what they've done? And you're going to help fund that? You're crazy. And so there was two extreme sides on this. And this was the thing that people were kind of nervous to talk about, I'm sure. So the question is brought to Jesus, and he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. So I want to unpack this idea a little bit more. Uh, turn to Romans chapter 13. And the Apostle Paul unpacks this idea a bit more. And there's some things for us to take away and understand. So in Romans uh, chapter 13, verse 1 through 2, Paul says this. And as we look at this, we're going to see, as we look at these two verses, there's going to be three things to see. A command to obey, a truth to believe, and a warning to heed. 
So Romans 13, 1 and 2. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. So the command to obey is that we are to be subject to the governing authorities. We should submit to the laws given to us by the government. The truth to believe is that uh, the governing authorities are not a product of man, not a product of elections, of campaigns, or any kind of even fraud. Uh, But those who are in positions of authority are there because God put them there. Be they good or evil or somewhere in between, God put them there. They are there according to God's mysterious purposes. Who knows what God is doing with the people he puts in authority? And as a side note, Joe Biden is president because it was instituted by God that he be president. I I, I don't know how some Christians who believe the Bible seem oblivious to this. All kings, all presidents, all mayors, local aldermen, whoever, they've been put there by God, be they good or evil. To say God's put them there isn't to say God's given a thumbs up, like, isn't this guy great? That's not what's happening. No matter how they find themselves there, Ultimately, it's God orchestrating this. He put King Nebuchadnezzar in power, who ruthlessly oppressed Israel. And then look, there's a warning to heed. Paul warns that those who resist these authorities are actually resisting God and will incur judgment. Now, it should be noted that when we come to the crossroad where we have to either obey God or obey the government, we obey God every time. Peter made this clear in Acts chapter 5, verse 29. So, so we're not saying this. We're not saying it's ultimate above God, but ultimately we, f- we follow God when there we come to a crossroads. But in, in light of this, in, in light of this command to, to obey the truth to believe the one to heed, Paul comes to this conclusion in Romans 13, 6 and 7. He says, For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue... Revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. They should pay taxes to the government because those in authority are God's ministers, God's servants. And according to verse 4 in Romans 13, they are working for your good. They're, they're doing things like putting roads in uh, and keeping the peace. And look, there's a lot of evil things to note about the Roman Empire. There's a lot of wicked things that happen. But you also have to acknowledge the Pax Romana, the peace of of Rome, where they, they weren't in a time of war. Roads were being built that helped to uh, further expand the gospel. Uh, they, they weren't in a wartime, so they were, they were traveling along without being raided. And so there was things that God was doing through the Roman Empire, even though there was many evil elements in it. And, and before I move on, I want to highlight one more thing on this, is that those who are in positions of authority in government are to be shown honor. In 1 Peter 2.17, Peter said, honor the emperor. (laughs) That was a tough pill to swallow. And look, one takeaway we have to have from this is that we should be careful how we speak of Joe Biden and Donald Trump. Neither of these men are above criticism. We are, of course, free to disagree and let it be known. But one thing that we are not free to do is to dishonor them. We must not do that. And I'll confess I'm guilty on both men. I've not always honored them in my speech. 
I need, we need to repent of that. God has not given us that freedom, even if the First Amendment gives us that freedom of speech. God has not given us the freedom to dishonor those in authority. So we should give to Caesar what is Caesar's. We should pay taxes, and we should show honor to our governing authorities. Now, let me move to the second part about giving to God what is God's. When Jesus asked about, was asked about paying taxes, he asked for a denarius, the, a coin, and he asked whose likeness was on it. Uh, you could also say whose image is on it. They said Caesar. So he concluded that since the denarius had Caesar's image on it, it belonged then to Caesar. The implication here is that if something bears the image of another, it belongs to them. It belongs to the one in whose image it was made. And you probably know where I'm going on this. And I think it's what Jesus is implying is that the one who bears the image, it belongs to the one whose image it bears. In Genesis 1.27, we read, So God created, created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created them male and female. He created them. We are created by God, for God. He is the potter. We are the clay. We are not autonomous creatures, uh, free to just carve out a great life for ourselves. We belong to God. We do not belong to ourselves. That means <clears throat> everything that we have, everything that we are, everything that we will be belongs to God. We, we, whatever we own, whatever we have in our possession is not primarily ours. We are using what belongs to God that he lets us use for a time. Now, I've talked to a lot of parents about, um, about teenagers getting phones. And uh, one of the, the kind of funny things that I heard from, from so many parents that when they gave their kids a phone, they put it this way. They said, this phone right here, this is mine. It belongs to me. Now, I'm going to let you use it, but it's mine whenever I want to pull it back. And so the understanding they were laying out real clear in the beginning was, this belongs to me, and you just get to use it because I'm super cool, <laughs> right? And so that is the Christian view of all things in your possession. It does not belong to you. God is letting you use it. And so we would do well to view our lives, everything in them, that what we currently are, what, what our plans are, what the future might be, whatever we possess, that it does not belong to us. It ultimately belongs to God. Because we do not belong to ourselves, but to God. We should give our ultimate, we should not give our ultimate allegiance to anything but God. And when we, even when we pay our taxes, we're not paying them necessarily just because the government says this. We're, we're ultimately obeying what God commanded us to do. We recognize that no authority exists except what God has instituted. Uh, and and this, is, this, is what we're, this is why we give. It's because God is over this. But as John Calvin said, our hearts are idle factories. We are constantly in the business of giving ourselves away, uh, not to God, but to other smaller gods, to other ideas, to other movements, or to people. So let me talk a little bit about not giving to Caesar what belongs to God. Or I could also say don't give to Caesar, to anyone, or to anything what belongs to God. So if we belong to God, then we are people of the book. Our God has revealed himself in a book. There's things written down for us to understand the character of our God and to know his will. In light of that, as Christians, as people of the book, we should be able to look at our culture and both commend and critique. We see what's happening around us in our government and our culture, 
And, and we should be able to say, this is good, this is bad, and there's good and bad in each camp. So let's consider for a moment the two camps that are engaging Jesus, the Herodians and the Pharisees. The Herodians were Jews who were committed to Herod or to Caesar or to Rome, and they were right about being good citizens, paying taxes. But they were wrong in where their ultimate loyalty was located. The Pharisees were right in that their loyalty must be first located in God, but they were wrong about refusing to pay taxes. They seem to have lost Jeremiah's, uh, Jeremiah's encouragement to seek the welfare of the city. And look, we can all be similar. Whenever we're right about something that is worthy of being commended, we usually carry something along with it that should be critiqued that we might not see. And, and, and because the reason we often don't see it is because there's so much to be commended. For example, how can any Christian not be completely horrified at what we saw with George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Philando Castile, and, and so many others? Those devastating murders, along with the history of racism in our country, should haunt us terribly. And we want to do something, but the problem is it's not real clear what to do. And, and in our zeal to fight against racism and, and any form of injustice, we can become vulnerable to a lot of bad ideas. Like, for example, in Robin D'Angelo's book, White Fragility, and other books that take a godless approach to racism, but we're so against any form of racism that whenever something pops up, we can grab onto it, not knowing that just because it's something good, that it might bring along with it a lot of bad ideas. Christians must view race through a God-centered and gospel lens. Otherwise, it's going to be off. It can even become harmful. We can get swept up into the air like the Herodians and the Pharisees. We'll go too far one way and not far enough another way. And on the race issue, Christians can be like the Herodians and have a misplaced loyalty to anti-racism. And look, let me be clear, all Christians must be against racism. Like, there's no even room to even discuss that. But anti-racism, the, the racism being over, that's not the gospel. Anti-racism is a product of the gospel. A Christian should be against racism for different reasons than non-Christians. That's what I think has gotten lost in, in, in a lot of the conversation. And we should actually be more opposed to racism than non-Christians because we believe everyone's made in the image of God. And as Christians, we believe that Jesus is building his church and the clear teaching of the New Testament is that this new people of God is a multi-ethnic people. And all of human history is bending and moving and tilting and going towards the throne of God where all peoples, language, tongues, and nations are gathered there together worshiping God. And we have to have a God-centered gospel lens for what God is doing. And that is what fuels us to fight racism. And it can't be just the rise of the, 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 the winds of where the culture might be blowing. Now, let me get on another side. Many of us are concerned about a, a more liberal agenda will mean for our country, including me. And we're not wrong to be concerned about those who would categorize murder of countless unborn babies as freedom of choice. Are you kidding me? How can we call an atrocity freedom of choice? Many pastors are concerned that simply calling homosexuality a sin 
like we've called all other type of sexual activity outside of marriage for 2,000 years, is soon going to be considered hate speech or a hate crime and maybe even illegal. And many of us were right to flinch during COVID at how local officials in many states interfered with the gathering of the church, either by not allowing it to happen at all or by interfering it in some places to the point where it was unrecognizable as the church, as an assembly, a gathering. So it's not surprising that many Christians would be conservatives politically, loyal to the Republican Party. What is surprising is how many Republicans seem to lose their way in party, towards party leadership. Psalm 115.8 says that those who make idols become like them. And we've seen many conservatives who supported Trump start to sound like him, making disparaging comments towards those with whom they disagree, and they call it courage or just not being afraid to be politically incorrect. And rather than seeing themselves as citizens of heaven, living as exiles in a fallen world, they see themselves as conservatives living as exiles in a liberal world. It's a subtle shift. It's an important shift. It can confuse America with Israel. One Christian leader even said that America is the last hope for Christianity. There are those who would be a part of the subtle his, uh, heresy of Christian nationalism, those who stormed the Capitol with crosses and Trump flags in tow. They broke into the Senate chamber and they paused for a prayer of thanksgiving. And some have even gone so far as to put signs in their yard that read, Make Faith Great Again, Trump 2020. Look, among conservatives and anti-racism activists, there is a lot to commend. There is also much to critique. The Herodians should be commended for being good citizens. They should be critiqued for their loyalty. The Pharisees should be commended for their loyalty to God. They should be critiqued for not being good citizens. The scriptures call us to seek first the kingdom of God, and we should also seek the welfare of the city in which we live. But we tend to mess that up. We go too far one way and not far enough the other way. Our hearts create idols at a pace that we cannot keep up with. We no sooner find a righteous cause to support than do we find an idol created in the shadows of that righteous cause. And the only way for us to live in this world is to live primarily as citizens of heaven, living as exiles in a fallen world in which we pray and work towards the kingdom coming and are good citizens in the meantime. We should be utterly committed to King Jesus and we should be good citizens. And in whatever camp we fall into, wherever our passions might lie, if we cannot critique it or bear to hear it critiqued, then we've likely made an idol of it and need to repent of it. If conservative movements are too important to be critiqued, then it's become too highly exalted. It's become an idol. If anti-racism movements are too important to be critiqued, then it has become too highly exalted. It's become an idol. We need to repent. And so may God help us to give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And to never confuse the two by giving our ultimate allegiance and loyalty to anyone else or anything other than King Jesus. And I'll close by reading this. For, for to us, a child is born, a son is given, 
and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And what's going to do this? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how we long for this government to be known in our day. The government of the Prince of Peace, the Everlasting Father, Mighty God, Wonderful Counselor. Would you help us to seek him and his kingdom above all things? And would you not let us come under the spell of earthly kingdoms, movements, or ideas? But may we be good citizens who seek the welfare of the city where righteousness and justice do indeed follow us where we go. So would you help us to not lose our way, but to find ourselves in you and committed to your kingdom. In Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen.